I'm Stephen Wright, and you're listening to Last Days of Diana, a Beyond Reasonable Doubt series from Mail Plus. Episode 5. No one's above the law. As well as the forensic evidence discussed in the last episode, Operation Paget also looked into the circumstances surrounding Diana's death, which involved speaking to everyone who had known the princess and could testify to her actions and emotions in her final weeks and months. At the heart of the conspiracy theories surrounding Diana's death was the accusation that the royal family, and particularly Prince Charles, her former husband, and Prince Philip, her former father-in-law, had orchestrated the plot to kill Diana. These accusations, in large part, originated with Mohammed al-Fayed, Dodi's father, whom Lord Stevens and the Operation Paget team were in regular contact with throughout the investigation. As you've said before, Lord Stevens, one of the first people you went to see at the outset of Operation Paget was the man without whom it is quite possible the investigation would never have been launched, Mohammed al-Fayed. This is the most famous, the most beautiful lady in the world, right? She is the mother of the future king. They've been murdered with my son. I'm nothing. I've been fighting for six years. I'm nothing after now happened. You obviously took statements from him as to his allegations of a murder plot to kill Diana and his son Dodi. Can you remember when you first met him? I met him straight away as soon as I was appointed. I met him up in Park Lane. I went there with Alan Brown and Dave Douglas, and he had one or two of his team there. And then actually made an agreement to see him at least once a month as the inquiry went on to update him on what we were doing. We were determined to see him, listen to what his concerns were, let him know what we were doing, and deal with it in a way that was very open. What do you recall of that first meeting, what the mood was like and what Mr Alfired was like? Because whatever people think of him, he was a grieving father, wasn't he? And, we, we, you know, you're a father, I'm a father. You'd empathise with that, wouldn't you? We reminded ourselves very, very regularly that he was a grieving father. I think the first meeting was extremely friendly. He was grateful that we'd taken on the inquiry and we, we got on pretty well then. As we did, in fact, over that three years until, I'm afraid, when we gave the conclusions, when the relationship deteriorated rather rapidly. But I imagine you would have told him that you're an independent police chief, your inquiry's independent, and, and as you say, you go where the evidence takes you, rather like me and my business, you go where the story takes you. Yeah, that, that's exactly what we told him. And he did refer to what we'd done, or I'd done, with my team in Northern Ireland, and I think he was quite convinced rightly so, that we would do an independent assessment and proper job of what was going on. Did it concern you at that stage that you might have to ask some really difficult or personal or sensitive questions of very senior members of the royal family in your quest to get to the truth? Uh, At the heart of Mr Alfayed's allegations was his belief that the crash was not an accident but was murder, and that further, this murder was a result of conspiracy by the establishment, and in particular, His Royal Highness Prince Philip and the Security and Intelligence Services. 
because of the relationship between Mr. Dodi Al-Fayed, who was Mohammed's son, and the Princess of Wales. You know, that's very, very serious allegations, and it went to the very heart of the royal family. It went to the very heart of MI5 and MI6. So you knew from the very beginning it wasn't going to be the easiest of jobs. Lord Stevens had to tread carefully, but it was his job to investigate all the allegations and conspiracy theories thoroughly, no matter how powerful or high profile the people accused. Perhaps the most high profile target of the accusations was the Queen's own husband, the Duke of Edinburgh. Conspiracy theorists said he had never liked Diana and had used his influence to organize for her death to look like an accident. Penny Junior has been writing about the royal family for nearly 30 years. I asked her, from her experience, what she thought the relationship between the Duke of Edinburgh and Diana had been like. I think they were all fond of Diana. You know, when Charles first met her and took her up to Balmoral in the summer of 1980, everybody loved her. You know, they, they all sort of fell in love with her because she was funny and and uncomplicated and they all liked her. I mean, it turned out, of course, that she wasn't at all uncomplicated. She was very complicated. And, and as time went by and the War of the Waleses was raging and, and she was you know, talking to Andrew Morton for his book, Diana, Her True Story, and then she was talking about the three of them in the marriage on Panorama and talking about the family and you know, life within it, then I guess they weren't as fond of her because she was causing a lot of problems. But the idea that the Duke of Edinburgh would have wanted her dead, again, I think is, is just beyond extraordinary, I mean, laughable. It may have been that their relationship was strained towards the end of Diana's life. After all, she had divorced his son and made very public allusions to Charles' infidelity but that alone was not enough to link the prince to her death. Lord Stevens, how did you go about addressing this accusation? Because as tenuous as the allegations were, you had to be seen to investigate every possibility. So how did you and the Paget team go about investigating the allegations against him? Yeah, yes, in relation to the Duke of Edinburgh, we got evidence and uh, spoke to friends and people who were confident in relation to, to him. All of the stuff that came out of that and all of the other issues were rumours. There was absolutely no evidence against Prince Philip uh, and there was no reason to see him. However, what we did, and this is what happens in a criminal investigation, we sent him a letter with these issues and gave him the opportunity of commenting and he decided to make no comment at all. Uh, I just want to reiterate, there was absolutely no evidence whatsoever against Prince Philip. Lord Stevens found nothing to suggest Prince Philip had played any role in Diana's death, but he wasn't the only royal accused of wanting the princess dead. There was a kind of particular reference made to Prince Charles, so I did have to go and see Prince Charles at St James's Palace in 2005, because that particular note was a piece of evidence naming him and had to be answered by him personally, which he did. The other evidence, naming others, were written in very general terms. As mentioned back in episode three, a letter penned by Diana herself and brought to light by her former butler, Paul Burrell, 
directly accused Prince Charles, her then-husband, of plotting to have her killed so he could marry their children's nanny. Did you have to ask him, you know, elephant out the room time, so to speak, were you involved in a plot to kill your ex-wife or did you sort of skirt diplomatically around the issue? How did you go about that? I can't imagine how you would deal with that issue. We went through the allegations and waited for his answers. He was, as always, charming. He was direct and he answered the questions very truthfully and very directly. He knew why we were going to see him and we took a statement from him in relation to that. May I ask you, did you actually ask him directly out? Were you involved? Did you, did you do it that way? Well, the allegation was that and it came out of uh, a note left by Diana, as he said, to Barrel in October 1995. Uh, she wrote of her fear that her husband would try and get rid of her in a car accident or something similar in order to leave him free to marry Tiggy. And Diana said Charles would use her and Camilla to this end. And uh, she mentioned that also to Lord Miscon, her solicitor. So those were put to him and those he answered quite openly and satisfactorily. Were you almost embarrassed to have to ask that question or be able to detach yourself from any sort of personal feelings you might have felt about that? Well, again, you know, there was a job of work to do and I think there is no doubt Prince Charles and those people who surround him respected that and uh, the same with other members of the royal family. And that was something that I respect him for because at the end of the day, it can't be very easy to have a policeman come in and ask questions about your personal life. He asked them in a very straight manner, and uh, it was very charming, but very direct, and we respected that. Penny Junior agrees that whilst highly unusual, it was only right that Lord Stephen spoke to the Prince of Wales. You know, nobody is above the law, and if that was a serious possibility that he had murdered his ex-wife, then that needed to be investigated. Awful for him, I would have thought. But, you know, he, he, I'm absolutely convinced, was 100% innocent and therefore, you know, would have, have nothing to hide. I mean, there's no way he wanted his wife dead. You seem quite convinced of that, Penny. By the time she died, they were actually getting on rather well together. She was much happier, he was much happier. She'd got over her anger about Camilla Parker Bowles. And, you know, they, they were, had a pretty civilised relationship. And she, you know, would repeatedly telephone him when things were going wrong and ask for his help or, or you know, want to chat about it. Why would he want her dead? You know, she was his son's mother. Lord Stevens, you also spoke to Prince William as part of your investigation. I don't propose to ask you close details of what was said, but you were able to get some background information on his mother's mood in the period before her death. And that was important, wasn't it? As well as very sensitive, I'd imagine. Yes, well, we put a number of questions to Prince William, which we, we did by a written submission. Uh, and he answered those. And one of the, the more important one in answering, and he answered all the questions I had to say, but one of the most important questions was, did his mother express to him the issue of whether she was going to get married? And he categorically said she had not. And she was in touch with him by letter, wasn't she, just in the, in the weeks leading up to her death? 
I think that's right. But I think she also had some telephone conversations with with him as well. So we got a, a, a real idea of what a state of mind was in relation to either getting married or some of her movements in relation to to her relationship with uh, Dodie. Obviously, very sensitive issues, but uh, you didn't have to meet him physically to be satisfied with his testimony. No, but subsequently, when the result of the inquiry came out, um, Prince Harry and Prince William uh, were quite keen to see me on my own uh, to discuss what had happened and me take them through what the main issues were and the results of the investigation at that stage and what our conclusions were. Another statement your team had to take, which I'd imagine was very difficult due to its sensitive nature, was the one from Hasnik Khan. He'd been in a relationship with Diana for a number of years prior to the summer she died. His statement contained a lot of intimate details about their relationship, including whether or not they had discussed getting married or having children. It also revealed some information that had never been known publicly before, such as the fact he had received hate mail whilst they were dating, and also details of Diana's relationship with other members of the royal family. I was wondering how your team went about taking such a statement and deciding what should be put in the public domain. Well, uh, that's one of the issues of the inquiry, that there was an amazing amount of intimate uh, details of Princess Diana's life, uh, what she was and how she did things, state of her body and things like that, which are quite uh, difficult for us to deal with because it's very personal. But I think the thing about Dr. Hasnik Khan is all of us were very impressed with him. He was an honest man, very impressive man. And I think all the accounts we documented indicated that she was very much in love with him and also wanted to marry him. Uh, but he didn't really want that. He didn't want the attendant media circus that followed her everywhere, which is understandable. No, it was um, that wasn't the only statements we took, quite frankly, which were very difficult to handle. Uh, there were a lot of statements taken that really shouldn't, in my view, see the light of day because they're very intimate and uh, very, very personal. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, in relation to those issues I've just mentioned, you know, some of the really sensitive, personal stuff from Diana's life. For the benefit of the listeners here, could you just explain, you know, the necessity of getting to the bottom of those issues and, you know, having to put those issues into the public domain? Why was it important into part of the process of investigating her death? Well, it was important that we got to the bottom of what her state of mind was at the time and her relationship with uh, Dr. Khan. We went through this in terms of the difficulty of taking statements of the most sensitive type. But when you're doing an inquiry like this, as I said some time ago, you've got to get the evidence and follow where the evidence takes you. And it was very important because she obviously had a very intimate relationship with Dr. Khan, thought immensely of him in terms of who he was and uh, where they were going in the future. And therefore he was very important to, uh, to our evidence gathering. Although the accusations held the royal family responsible for Diana's death, even they did not go so far as to suggest the Prince of Wales had personally cut the brakes on the Mercedes. 
there were suggestions that instead the British Secret Service had been involved, acting on behalf of the royals. There was some evidence that people working for MI6 had been in Paris on the day of her death. Lord Stevens, that was another aspect of the conspiracy that you had to debunk, wasn't it? I can imagine that it was also quite difficult for you to deal with, though in a very different way, because you were having to deal with parts of the government that are, by their very nature, highly secretive. Well, they are, and uh, you know some of those uh, secrets they have quite rightly jealously guard. However, I think this was the first time ever that two of us went into MI5 and were given a free reign, that was Dave Douglas and myself, of their kind of documentation, uh, a free reign in terms of their files. I think we went in there, if I remember rightly, for a couple of days. And we went to MI6 as well, and we had to ensure that we were totally satisfied that neither of those agencies were involved in any way in the tragic circumstances in the armour tunnel that night. Just to be clear here, were you going through their dossiers, so to speak, on the Princess of Wales, uh, or the Princess Diana, I should say? Well, with these things, you've got to go through more than that. We look through any kind of file that we thought would have been of interest. So uh, we had a good look through that, but I don't intend to say any more about that. We had a look at a lot of files relating to a lot of people. And were there any overseas agencies as well, you know, the MI5, MI6 counterparts overseas? Yes, there were. One of the allegations were the Americans were listening and eavesdropping to the phones of Diana that night and other people. So we actually got in touch with the American authorities and they assured us that wasn't the case. So we covered that in terms of a written statement from them. We didn't go over there to follow that up. We got a written statement which answered all our queries satisfactorily. You also had the tricky issue, and I remember this being aired at the time, and certainly at the inquest, of dealing with Henri Paul's family, again, a grieving family. Yes. His parents lost a son. A lot has been written about Henri Paul over the years, you know, millions of words, literally, about him. I wondered if you could put the record straight as best you can, talk about him being a spy, having a lot of money in his account, being an alcoholic drug abuse. These are all things which are in the public domain and clearly he was driving too fast. I don't think anyone could dispute that. What were you and your officers able to establish about those issues? I did see his parents at the embassy in Paris and had a fairly lengthy uh, conversation with them, answered their questions again. Remember they were they were absolutely devastated what had happened to their son. There were a lot, lot of things talked about on Paul specifically that night, but I think going through the facts is really important. He did not expect to come back and drive the car that he was asked to drive that night. He had actually gone off duty, and then he came back. He'd had a couple of Ricards, which are quite strong drink. We actually analysed his blood, had it analysed again, and found that he was over the French legal limit. He had excess alcohol. But if you look at all of the CCTV pictures, his behaviour, you couldn't, in my view, say he was drunk. He certainly had too much to drink to drive the car. But in terms of being drunk, in my kind of definition, it's people slur their speech, have difficulty walking uh, and issues like that. So that could explain why Diana and Dodie were happy to get in the car with Henri Paul, because he didn't appear drunk. Yet we heard in the previous episode that enough alcohol had been found in his blood to impair his judgment and reactions. 
So what about the money in his account? Some have said that could have been a payoff of some sort. So Henri Paul had a certain sum of money in his pocket at the time and in his bank account. Well, we know from evidence that he was the head of security at the Ritz, and uh, he used to do things for people, legal things for people, and get very big tips, and I think that's where that money came from. And finally, what about the suggestions that he had some sort of link to the French Secret Service? We also talked to the French Secret Service, and more importantly got the anti-terrorist branch of the Police Nationale, to have a look and see what he, his background. Well, they satisfied us that he didn't work for the French government. Now, that night, he was just an unfortunate part of what took place. He lost his life as a result of it. He wasn't skilled in driving cars at high speed. He had a pilot's license, but that was not for driving cars. And at the end of the day, I think he was just one of those persons who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and actually trying to oblige his employer. Lord Stevens's team were convinced that there was no evidence linking Henri Paul to any conspiracy to kill Diana. He'd been drinking on the evening of the crash, though it's unclear to what extent that impaired him. As Operation Paget drew to a close, Lord Stevens and his team had investigated all the major theories surrounding Diana's death, that it was a plot by the royal family, that the secret services were involved, that the driver Henri Paul had been paid off and many more. They'd found no evidence to suggest that any of them were true. The Paget Report was published in December 2006. The 832-page document systematically examined and debunked most of the conspiracy theories built up around the world's most infamous car crash. Mohammed al-Fayed was furious. Not accepting any cover-ups, accepting any just whitewash as uh, Lord Stevens report, which is completely shocking. I can't expect from a man with such an important position can just do whitewash as we have done. Just unbelievable. I imagine you would have been aware, as a streetwise former very senior officer, that everything you did would be mulled over by Mr Al-Fayed and his legal team, that they wanted to be sure that you'd gone about this vigorously without fear or favour. imagine that would be the back of your mind, wouldn't it, Lord Stevens? Well, uh, very much in the back of the mind. And then, of course, the other issue which was there is that, you know, sometimes the cover-up is the main story, and we've got many examples of that. The other issue is that everything had to be pushed in front of the coroner and everything had to be actually pushed in front of the jury. So this was something which was unique in terms of looking at, assessing what a criminal investigation had done and the conclusions it came to. And remember, some of us, I in particular, had to go in the witness box and answer all these questions, be cross-examined by someone like Michael Mansfield, who at the end of the day, of course, as I said earlier, is a very skilled and highly proficient defence lawyer, one of the, probably the best in the country. So this wasn't something that could be fudged. It was something that had to be done, and it had to be done in a way that was professional. And I think people respected that. You clearly felt confident in your conclusions and thought that they would stand up to scrutiny before the coroner and jury at the inquest a year later in 2007. 
Can I talk you through the conclusions of your report? Your verdict, Lord Stevens, was basically that it was a road traffic accident and that there was nothing sinister about that. How did you reach that conclusion? Well, the conclusion was that we had no doubt that speculations of what had happened that night would continue, obviously. Uh, however, what we thought and what we, we proved and what was subsequently absolutely agreed by the jury after six months of evidence was that Mr. Bayard had died and Princess Diana had died, as had Henri Paul died, as a result of a tragic accident. And that accident had been caused by excess speed and the paparazzi. And that is something that, of course, uh, was confirmed, as I say, by the findings of the coroner and the jury. If Diana had had Scotland Yard protection, I can't imagine that a police bodyguard would have allowed Henri Paul to be at the wheel of that car that night. You're absolutely right. I think if the police protection had been there, linked in with the French uh, security services and their protection, then this wouldn't have happened. I've got no doubt about that. And certainly Henri Paul wouldn't have been driving a car. The high calibre professional close protection that the police would have been giving to Princess Diana would have ensured that did not take place. I'm absolutely sure of that. And of course he was speeding because there were paparazzi in pursuit of the vehicle going through the tunnel. That was a key part of your inquiry as well, wasn't it? Yes, well, they were chasing, they had high-performance motorbikes, most of them, and cars, and chasing them through. And, of course, one of the more unpleasant parts of all of this was they took pictures of Dodie when he was being taken out of the car by the hospital and the ambulance people, as they did of Diana. So, I mean, at the end of the day, they didn't cover themselves in anything other than a very despicable way of behaving. Now, if you'd have had a police kind of, an official police escort there, they'd have actually had police cars behind to to form a barrier with the paparazzi to keep them at distance. I've no doubt that had taken place. But there would have been cooperation between the Scotland Yard detectives who were doing close protection and, of course, the French police. There's always very good relationships in respect of that. So the paparazzi were very much a part parcel, I think, of making Henri Paul drive far faster than he probably would have done and also probably frightening him and the occupants of the car. Now, there's one person, I imagine, who was deeply unhappy with those conclusions, Mr Alfayed. How did you go about informing him about what your extensive investigation had concluded? Well, we actually informed his lawyers and uh, his head of security that we'd come to conclusions. And I said, I'll go and speak to him personally because I owed him that and we owed him that. So I was going down with Detective Chief Superintendent Douglas to do that. When I got the uh, message that he didn't want to see me and he was very, very upset by our conclusions, which he didn't agree with, I said, look, I'll see you at any time if you want. You know, we've had good relationships over the last three years, but I never saw him again until we went to the to the coroner's inquest where he was sitting there and I was giving evidence and being cross-examined. So uh, it was all very unfortunate, really. Whether that was always going to be the case, I don't know. But I tried to see him personally, and if he wanted to give me stick personally and have a go at me personally, I wasn't worried about that because, as I say, from the very beginning, we treated him as a grieving father, and that's how we'll continue to treat him. He basically snubbed a meeting of you. Did you talk to him at all, even on the phone, or have any communication? Was that it? No, he wouldn't do that. But what I did was speak via his head of security, John McNamara, just explaining. John was quite sympathetic to where we were, but of course he, he worked for Mr Alfayed. The bottom line of it was that Mr Alfayed didn't want to hear what we had to say. Though Lord Stevens clearly feels he and his team did a thorough and fair job during Operation Paget, 
and the inquest would eventually accept his findings, Mohammed al-Fayed was very unhappy with the results, and vocally so. The father who lost his son, and fighting for 10 years, at last we're going to have a jury from ordinary people, and I hope to reach the, the decision which I believe that my son and Prince Diana have been murdered by the royal family. Okay. Although Michael Cole does not speak for his former employer here, he does have similar opinions on the investigation. There is really no area of investigation that Operation Paget investigated thoroughly. And at the end, the product of the investigation, the 832 pages of it, was deeply flawed and it was riddled with errors. Stevens was provided with a dossier from the two-year French inquiry. And in the end, after three years of investigating, Stevens parroted the French conclusions that, that Diana and Dodie died as a result of being passengers in a car driven by a driver influenced by drink, who was also speeding. Can I just put this to you, though? Because that tunnel, I've driven through it, it's a dangerous tunnel to drive through at speed, and even if you weren't drunk but you've been drinking, that your ability to drive safely would be impaired. And if you add in that the fact that neither Dodie nor Princess Diana were wearing seatbelts, isn't that a more innocent explanation for what happened? It would be good if there was a full explanation of what happened. But as you know, having been there, the French thoroughly cleansed the scene twice within hours of the crash, rendering any proper forensic investigation null and void. Henri Paul Speed, it has been established, was about 62 miles per hour. Now, that is fast, but on an urban motorway, perhaps not excessively fast. I'm not a counsel for Henri Paul, but I don't believe he deserved to be traduced and to be castigated in the way he was because it is a matter of fact that his parents who were ordinary simple people from Brittany they came to Paris probably for the first time in their life and they went to the British Embassy and they were met by Sir John Stevens and Sir John Stevens this is in testimony threw his arms around them and said, don't worry, Mr. and Mrs. Paul, I'm not going to blame your son for the deaths of Diana and Dodie and his own death. And John Stevens denied that that had happened, but the person who was with him, Detective Inspector Jane Scotchbrook, when her evidence to the inquests confirmed that that's indeed what had happened. Now, all of these matters matter. When Operation Padrip, which you're very critical of, rightly or wrongly, was launched, Mr Alfayed had full confidence, it seemed, in the then Sir John Stevens. But there was a deterioration in that relationship, wasn't there, Michael? John Stevens came to see Mohammed and assured him in very expansive terms that he would do everything within his powers to investigate the situation and to find the truth. And Mohammed believed very, very strongly 
that that would happen. But in many, many ways, he was to be disappointed. The Paget inquiry failed to interview hundreds of important witnesses who would have helped immensely in revealing a truer picture of what occurred. These included witnesses in the tunnel, witnesses near the tunnel, witnesses along the route, witnesses regarding the white Fiat Uno, the paparazzi, key MI6 personnel in London, key royals in the family and household, ambulance personnel, Ritz Hotel witnesses, important French officials, and police officers. Witnesses regarding Henri Paul's activities. All of this was not pursued. How did you feel, Lord Stevens, about the accusations made against you and your team by Mr Alfired after you had published your conclusions? I was actually quite cross at some of the allegations that he had put our way and put the way of the team, that we hadn't done a proper job and that we were part of the conspiracy ourselves. Well, we were jolly well not, that's for sure. Were you expecting some criticism? Was it inevitable, do you think? I think, to be honest, we expected to be attacked in some form or another if, if things didn't go the way that Mr Alfard wanted it to go. But, you know, where I get really cross is when people attack people who work for me. I feel I've got a real loyalty to them. And I'd seen how hard they'd worked. I'd seen how hard they'd put themselves out. I'd seen the level of professionalism and the delivery and the fact that they were totally neutral in how we attacked these things and how we'd done the investigation. So, yeah, I was cross and I was cross on their behalf. For more than a decade, there had been bitter divisions over the causes of the parish crash. Now it's time for an inquest jury to decide. In the next episode, we'll look closely at the explosive inquest into Diana's death, where sensitive details about her private life, her mental state and her relationships were made public. You've been listening to Last Days of Diana, a Beyond Reasonable Doubt podcast series for Mail Plus with me, Stephen Wright. Next time. Mohammed Al-Fayed went into court claiming that the Stevens report into Diana and Dodie's deaths had been a whitewash. But what happened... We're looking for justice and I hope we see, can see the light of what's happening today. We had looked at this so carefully. We'd looked at this not just from how do we prove that this was just an accident. We looked at it from every point of view. The Fiat's paint marks were found on the wrecked Mercedes. I was in Paris looking for the driver of the car which he believed was involved in that collision, the white Fiat. That was an unresolved issue in some respects. Well, it wasn't part of the cover-up. There was a really good reason to why she was embalmed, which is very sensitive, and that was not part of the cover-up whatsoever. If you've enjoyed listening, please consider telling your friends. And if you'd like more on this and other stories, you can visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more, including previous Beyond Reasonable Doubt episodes.